Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. We have a special guest today, Mickey. Um, I'm told you've prepared an elaborate introduction for our guest. <laughs> uh, I have not prepared anything, but I'm exceedingly happy because uh, our guest, our first ever guest is Paul Bloom, um, who uh, is a world famous psychologist from Yale. Uh, he's got some fancy title. What's your fancy title, Paul? Um, well, first, thanks for having me here. Um, I'm the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor of Psychology. Yes. Um, author of many books. I think your most recent book, uh, Against Empathy, uh, was quite popular, uh, controversial as well, but you're also uh, writing... I, I have another one in the works. Yes. Um, Against Empathy was quite popular. It was also uh, not universally uh, uh, popular. <laughs> <laughs> no way. No. And they pushed some good ideas, I think, really pushed the uh, the field. And, and I disagree with aspects of it, but I think it was a useful uh, direction for the field to go, uh, to consider this, this other side. Thank you. I mean, the normal thing for me to say is, well, I hope to start a conversation. But actually, I thought I was right, and I just wanted to kind of end it. But I started a conversation, and we're, we're um, kidding aside, there's a lot of good dialogue going back. Some of other psychologists, some of our friends, and some of just sort of smart people who've written me in to express their disagreement. And, 90% of the conversation has been civil and interesting and fun. Never any uh, any bad words thrown your way? Well, the other 10%, um, I got my first death threat. Um, it, no. was, it wasn't a serious death threat, it was, although I did get them banned from Twitter. Um, I, I Somebody retweeted one of my empathy things, and, he, and he, this guy responded by saying, you know, you, you know, you bastard, you're against empathy. I should go to your house and blow your fucking brains out. And I'm thinking, like, really? What? You're a pro empathy guy. <laughs> don't you see the contra- really? don't, don't yeah. you see the contradiction inherent in what you're saying? Oh, Making my. team empathy look good. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> wow, a death threat for you know, really. I mean, uh, arguing that's a philosophical argument in some way. You know, you know, the to what extent is uh, there a dark side of empathy, yeah. or to, to what extent are there limitations? And um, I don't think you got into the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I'll say this. So I, you know, I, I read your book uh, last year, and I had it at uh, the bottom of our of our um, staircase. And my wife, who's a psychotherapist. Every time she'd pass the book, she'd be like, I can't stand that book. I can't stand that book. I'm like, you haven't read it. You don't know the ideas. It's, you know, there are some interesting ideas in there. But I think for, for her, uh, the notion of anyone being against empathy was, um, didn't sit well with her. It's, it, it's a common response. And a lot of it turns to people use the term empathy in different ways. And there's no good language for talking about our relationship with others. So in my book, I distinguish between understanding other people, which I think is great, and probably what your wife was talking about, caring about other people, which I also think is great. But what I object to is putting yourself in other people's shoes and feeling what they feel. And I only object to that in the moral realm. I think it leads to a lot of bad moral decisions. I tweeted something today, which I thought was a perfect example of this. It was something, it was a report from, uh, I, I think, MSNBC, where they interviewed a woman at a Trump rally about immigrant children being locked in cages. And she burst into tears and she started to sob. And the reporter pressed her and she said, I feel so bad for Donald Trump. He's working so hard and nobody is giving him the support he needs. And she just collapsed and weeping. And to me, that's a wonderful example of how empathy can be directed. Poor guy. Really, I feel bad for him. He gave up a lot to be president, you know. Yes, he certainly did. (laughs) Yeah, that's, I think, was an interesting example. I saw you got some... uh... Some interesting yeah, responses to that. Yeah, that's some interesting <laughs> responses to that. Um, but before we get ahead of ourselves, you know, we are two psychologists, four beers. Although today we've gone exponential. Uh, three psychologists. I've bought nine beers. Uh, so, yeah. Paul, I don't know if you knew would you'll be drinking three, not two. Is that? I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable drinking nine. All right. Oh, nine. That, that, that would be something. <laughs> that sounds like a challenge. Um, now, would this be a bad time to bring up the kind of mockery? That the two of you have received from oh, your, this is the perfect segue. Your, 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 your comrades <laughs> at Very Bad Wizards, this wonderful podcast. Um, who who were they? Uh, um, um, David, Dave. Uh, you remember his name? Uh, no, what, uh, bizarre. I, something like that. Bizarre. Picaro. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay. There you go. Yeah, David. No, David Pizarro, Tamler Summers, a wonderful philosophy psychology podcast. But and you guys are the new kids, and I understand they've been giving you a lot of support and kindness. But they also made fun of your uh, two psychologists for beers. I remember distinctly David Pizarro kind of saying, "I don't talk about all the drugs I'm on when I'm on this show," and he listed some, you know, Adderall, of course, and uh, you know. Prozac, antidepressants, probably cocaine, Viagra, maybe. Um, and he really made it sound like something very dweeby about the two of you talking about uh, 
your your four beers. So maybe you want to respond. Uh, I feel like, you know, I'm at a loss for words. I mean, I feel I, I, I have nothing but love for, for David and Tamler. I've never met Tamler. Uh, seems like a swell guy. Uh, and they've supported us a lot. And uh, you know what? We like beers. I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe you, you, well, you've got something clearly witty prepared. Uh, yeah. I come back. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I, they're, they're wonderful folks. Um, they've been very supportive. I, I feel okay that I'm not on five drugs right now. Like <laughs> I, at that, at this point in my life, you know, I'm 40. I, I don't need to be, uh, snorting Viagra, you know, but you know, we all have different priorities and life goals and it's cool that david is into those things and open about it yeah. too admitting. and open about yeah. it yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's working for him yeah, yeah. exactly hunter thompson of exactly. the podcasting yeah. uh, i mean next time i introduce him i might have to mention that uh, in a talk i admitted to being on four drugs at once yes. uh regularly yeah yeah so okay. but i, I want to you know uh so thank you uh you know that's a good uh, lead into the beers yeah thank you uh, very bad wizards for all the love uh and uh mockery that's fine um but i want to talk a little bit about our beer uh today so i bought nine of a beer called disco soleil this is a um a beer from saint jerome quebec so uh not far from both of our hometowns paul not far from montreal quebec where we both uh born and raised um and this is a this is kind of funny because I was giving, I was giving, you know, the champagne of beers, the Miller High Life. Uh, I was kind of insulting. I, f- I felt I did cry. I, I didn't realize the sanctity with which people held Miller High Life. I didn't realize that. You got a lot of pushback. On yeah, that. yeah, really? I did. Uh, I, yeah, I, mean, I don't give a shit. I don't think it's a good beer. So I, I stand by my words. Um, but so now this is like nothing can contrast with the champagne of beers more than this, which is a kumquat IPA. I and mean, I feel just funny saying that a kumquat IPA. It's a funny word. It is. And I'm it, not talking about IPA. <laughs> no, the kumquat definitely. It, that's just a little. That's just a little baby orange, right? <laughs> is that what that is? <laughs> I'm not a botanist. I. <laughs> I don't. I feel like it's small and orange, and it has like a shiny skin, doesn't it? But you eat the skin. I think so. You eat yeah, the skin. Yeah, yeah. and they're quite sour, I believe. As well. Unlike the orange. Yes, yeah. the rind is quite thick. So, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, I've, uh, what do you guys think of it so far? Oh, I think it's good. great. Yeah, it's, it's a bit hoppier than I thought it would be. It's no Miller High Life. It's no Miller High Life. That, you know, that, that is true. And thank you for that. Let's, uh, you know, uh, gentlemen, thank you for being here. Cheers. Cheers. Paul, thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me. So we have a little bit of follow-up, do we not? Yeah, we do. We um, uh, Yesterday, our, our third episode was released. That was our episode on the intellectual dark web. Uh, we called it... Uh, you know, uh, WTF is the IDW, uh, uh, UL's clever uh, title work. Um, and uh, I think I stand by a lot of what I said, and I, I'm not sure, UL, if, if you feel the same. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I stand by a lot of what I said, but I also feel, uh, I feel I've changed my mind regularly uh, about the intellectual dark web, especially about our colleague, Jordan Peterson. Um, I think one at one point we'll have a show just on him. Um but I feel like he's in the news like every week, uh, every you know second day with some major breaking news. So, for example, today, major news. He is suing Wilfrid Laurier University um, for libel. Um, and it's a strange case because um, he is suing them because so a TA, Lindsay Shepard, uh, famously played a clip of his in her class that she TA'd. And then she was reprimanded in this very strange meeting where uh, it was almost like a struggle session where people, yeah. you know, she had to admit that she was wrong to, to show this and likening Jordan to, to, to Hitler. You know, I'm, you know, I think I, w- I was appalled by that behavior. Um, and I understand that Lindsay Shepard is also suing Wilfred Laurie and, and she might have a case perhaps, but Jordan? Um, I, I agree. I, I have mixed feelings about Jordan Peterson and, and um, I think unlike some of my colleagues, I think he actually has some interesting things to say. I think he also has some terrible things to say, but, but for him to sue under those circumstances, it's kind of rich. I mean, this is a guy who is identified with free speech, the, the, the right to say unpopular things, the, the, this, and he himself has said whole university departments are just garbage and should be obliterated. And nobody's trying to silence him for that. So, so people say awful things about him. Well, tough. Yeah, he he's shown himself. I think to have a very thin skin. Yeah, about these things and this and, and I I I wish he had the the friends or colleagues or confidants to tell him, Jordan, this is like a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. Any other of the folks that we talked about that your feelings have changed on? Yeah, a little bit. Um, so we also talked about Dave Rubin, um, who 
I mean, you know what? The truth is, even when, I, when we spoke about this, uh, this is like about a month ago now, I already had some misgivings. He just seemed credulous and kind of like wasn't critical enough of the people he interviewed. And he had, he had you know, white supremacists on there and kind of not pushing them. Um, and uh, just not thoughtful. So, uh, and I, I feel like, you know, my opinion is, is, is if anything, is only strengthened in that regard. And people called me to task. Some people were were uh, critical of me. Not fine. I don't care if people criticize me. But I think here's a case where um, I think they were right. Uh, I, again, probably gave him too much, uh, too much credit. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other piece of follow-up that a reader brought to our attention. Uh, the guy from, uh, what was it, Evergreen? Uh, we said Brett Weinstein, and it's actually pronounced Weinstein, so we regret the error. What? Ever, man. Come on, give me a no, fucking we, I think we should get it right. <laughs> I think we should get it right. So, okay, so I think, you know, as we mentioned, we want to kind of, uh, a theme today will be uh, about pain, and we're talking, you know, we, we had the segue there with Jordan Peterson. Um who made the argument? And I think it's an interesting one about, you know, there being some benefits to being disagreeable. Um, so I thought that mean, might be a nice thing for us to talk about. And um, one thing I actually had us do, I thought, I thought it'd be kind of fun, is uh, we each completed a measure of agreeableness. It's a measure developed by Colin DeYoung, a uh, very well-known, uh, super smart uh, personality psychologist at the, out of the University of Minnesota, uh, and a friend of mine, and a uh, super nice guy. He helped us with this. Um, so he, desi- he designed a uh, measure of the Big Five called the Big Five Aspect Scale. Um, so uh, I asked each, each of you to uh, at least answer the questions related to agreeableness. Um, and maybe before we begin, we can define what agreeableness is. Uh, so I got a couple of definitions here, and maybe you guys can, you know, chime in if you have any ideas if I'm missing anything. Um, so we hear one definition. Uh, I think this comes from Costa uh, McRae. Uh, agreeableness involves the tendency towards cooperation, maintenance of social harmony, and consideration of the concerns of others. As opposed, as opposed to exploitation or victimization of others. Agreeableness is often defined as the level to which a person displays trust, straightforwardness, altruism, compliance, modesty, and tender-mindedness. Mm-hmm. Now, there's already a tension in those definitions, right? So altruism and compliance, those can go in opposite directions, no? Yeah, they certainly can. So people like uh, Colin DeYoung have uh, devised um, not just scales and measure the, the big five, but also uh, aspects or uh, aspects of the big five. So, you know, dividing each of the five into two sub-dimensions. And indeed, there are two dimensions for agreeableness. Uh, so the two dimensions are um, politeness. And I'll give you some examples of questions that we had answered. Could I just step back? Somebody here should, should uh, remind people what the big five are. The big five person. Yeah, you, you sound like you just volunteered. <laughs> Ocean. That's Ocean. a good acronym. Ocean. So the big five are... You guys correct me. This is so... I really should have kept my mouth shut. This is awesome. Um, <laughs> I teach interest psych. It's all from interest psych. Um, the big five... Personality psychology, I tried to figure out how do you reduce a person's personality to, to a series of traits. And there's been struggles. So people would have like 18 different traits. People have two different traits. But the field sort of converged more or less on five, maybe six or seven, more or less on five. And the acronym here is OCEAN. So, um, so one trait is how open you are, openness to experience. Another trait is how conscientious you are. Another trait is how extroverted you are, as opposed to introverted. A for agreeableness. And then for neuroticism, how kind of nutty you are. And so we're focusing, and I didn't mean to interject with that, but we're focusing on, on the agreeableness part, which is one fifth of the scale. Yes, that's right. And yeah, that, that's good. We should probably give in context since uh, we hope there are non-psychologist listeners out there who are interested in psychology. Uh, we, should, you know, we, should, we should educate as well, you will. Mm. No? Mm. That was great. <laughs> yeah, well, that yeah. was a great explanation. Yeah, he's, he's, you're, you're all disgusted. <laughs> yeah, he is. He is. His dominant emotion. Um, it's gonna actually, be, this is all going to be edited out. <laughs> this, is, this is gone. This is totally gone. So, okay. So, agreeableness, there are two aspects. Uh, there is politeness, and then there is compassion or empathy. Uh, so, uh, so items, uh, some example items from politeness. I just I actually picked one that I kind of resonated with me. Um, uh, but there are, I think, were 10 items in each, uh, I believe, in each scale, um, and five in each facet, I guess. So, um, politeness, uh, I rarely put people under pressure. Um, I insult people. Um, I love a good fight. Uh, that'd be politeness. And the compassion is, I take an interest in other people's lives. Uh, I like to do things for others. And then another example would be, I am out for my own personal gain. 
Right. So you have one that's kind of rudeness and one that's, you know, feeling for others, caring for others, kindness to some extent. So, okay. So we each, uh, so I got, you know, Colin, uh, we sent Colin our scores and then he scored, he scored us and gave us normed, uh, you know, percentiles based on a sample of about 3,000 students and people he had tested over the years. So these are most, we're, we're you know, comparing ourselves now to mostly students from the University of Minnesota, some Midwesterners. So we should put that in context yeah. when we reveal the scores. Um, Okay, so Paul, you are our guest. So um, we'll start with you. Uh, so you were like right, you know, right smack in the middle. So you were fifty second percentile uh, on agreeableness, so right in the middle, not, not pretty that. average, yeah. pretty average. I mean, is that something you get used to or being average? Or uh, it's just it's just perfect. I'm not <laughs> I'm not a psycho like some people, but also I'm not a doormat like not some sure. like some other people. Yes, that's so. right, right in the middle. So we can break that down uh, into uh, the two um, aspects. Uh, so you're 59th percentile on compassion. Uh, so again, you know, pretty much right in the middle there. And then 45th percentile on uh, politeness. So again, right in the middle, but slightly below. Um, so yeah, kind of right in the middle there. Uh, Yoel, you were the, uh, the teddy bear of the group. Which I think was surprised. I was a little surprised I by these scores. I was not expecting that. Not when yeah. you- this makes no sense. I think the test is wrong. It must maybe, be wrong. Maybe it should be reverse coded. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what were his numbers? So his, Joel is a 73rd percentile on agreeableness, um, 78th on compassion, and then 58th on uh, politeness. I'm definitely argumentative, though. I feel like th- there's no way that I'm less argumentative than like more than half of people. Yeah, it seems odd. It seems odd. Yeah, no, I I, I was also taken aback by by those scores. Yeah. But now, did you see Paul's scores before you answered? No, no, I didn't. You uh, answered yeah, it I, honestly. I did not. No, yeah, I uh, I didn't look at either of your scores. So, so I mean, that's one issue, which is any any smart person could could look at the questions and know what the. Know how to look agreeable. How to know how to look non-agreeable. You have to kind of trust that people choose to be honest. You don't need to see my scores to know how to come off as like a normal person. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so yeah, so that's maybe one dig at like self-report. But you know, the, the big five is you know highly reliable. Also, correlates highly with informant reports. So yeah. friends of yours would rate you quite similarly to how you rate yourself. Um, so these are these are good measures. So I scored uh, on the second percentile. Wow, second percentile overall, <laughs> overall wow. on agreeableness. So really, really low. Um, but I'm not a complete shithead. Uh, so. On compassion, I'm 16th. So, I mean, I feel like, I feel that's not so bad. I feel like that's... <laughs> that's your case for not an asshole. Yeah. I feel that is not too bad. It's pretty thin. <laughs> yeah. So, one out of six people is worse than you. Yeah, right. And then, uh, politeness. First percentile, baby. Yeah. Yeah, so... That's insane. I know that is insane, but I, you know, I, so... My background is uh, I'm Jewish. My mom is Israeli. I feel I just that just I'm just Israeli. That's the culture of my house, and uh, Israelis are tend to be more direct and uh, perhaps not as uh, bothered with politeness. But I don't want to get gushy. But you're not a rude guy. I think I, I'm a binary person. Like I, I answered very few questions, like with threes, like right, you know, neither here nor there. Um, so that might have pushed me to be more extreme in a bunch of my scores. I'm always amazed how these tests manage to predict anything because whenever i look at the questions i never know how to answer them so take one of your examples i love a good fight mm-hmm. well i love a good fight like about ideas and among our friends and you're just bouncing around things and and so on but so yeah like fine but um but what about you know about in a relationship about you know about some sort of internal tension i'm extremely conflict averse one and for a lot of them i'm sort of saying well in this way i'm this and in this other way i'm the opposite so I, I, I guess the tests have some validity and, and they managed to sort of factor out this sort of ambiguity, but just surprised it ever works. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, I, so I, I read that question because it says, I love a good fight. So good there oh. um, is like, okay, that's already getting at either something uh, intellectual or some sparring. You can even be physical. I like, I love, I love watching a good fight. You like boxing or wrestling or whatever. Um, but a good fight, I wouldn't describe that, you know, as a you know fight with my romantic partner. Yeah. That wouldn't be a good fight. Yeah, it, aren't we rehashing the uh, Michelle debate from the seventies? The person versus the situation. Yeah, here's somebody who's taught intro psych. I don't, like, <laughs> oh my, that's all I know though. Those three words and we're done. Yeah, yeah. I'll explain negative reinforcement and then I'll just go on to the next guess. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, like some of that it's. 
it is kind of strange, right? I mean, because one could easily answer in a way that one wanted, but yeah, but again, these things have real strong predictive validity. They're, they're some of our best tests out there. Um, do they? I mean, do they really? Like, I, in aggregate, yes, they're like reasonably predictive, but, you know, for saying, what are you going to do in a given situation? Are they all that good? I mean, I think at the individual level, I think it's, you know, all bets yeah. are off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm not sure a diagnostic at, at any one person level. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. There's so much variability. I mean, even how you read the question, yeah. right? Or response biases that you might have, but an aggregate, certainly. Right. Um, like, I wouldn't have read, I like a good fight in the same way that, that you did. Mm -hmm. I, I would have read it as just, I like fighting. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I, I'm the kind of person who thinks fights are good. Right. And I like yeah. a good fight. Right. Yeah. You know, agreeableness makes you cautious, makes you conflict averse. And I think a lot of people who do really good in this world aren't like that. Um, when I look at the great moral heroes, I don't think agreeable men and women. Jesus Christ, Martin Luther King, Donald Trump. <laughs> I was with you until that last one. I feel so bad for him, you know? <laughs> He's under... The media just won't give him a break. You know? He's sad. Under, sad. He's under intense stress, really. Yeah. Yeah, it is, is hard. He's, um, yeah. Go on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as I was preparing uh, for for this little discussion... Uh, about some of the benefits of, 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 of potentially benefits. And, and, you know, let's, let's be honest here. You know, I'm doing this because I want to save face. Um, I want, I want, I want you guys to, to, to tell the world that I'm not such a horrible person because there are some positives to being disagreeable. Uh, disagreeable people, uh, tend to get promoted more, uh, quickly. They tend to earn higher salaries. Um, so people actually, especially for men, um, men who are disagreeable earn, depending on what sample you look at, they earn between, um, after, you know, controlling for a lot of your background variables, they earn between 10 to $20,000 more on average in some of these big data sets. So does this mean you're getting paid more than the rest of us? <laughs> it might mean that I've asked for more raises. Okay. Um, and so I mean, that would be, that would be, I guess, one of the mechanisms, right? Um, so unafraid to ask for what you want. So I, maybe we should take a break in a little bit, but I was, uh, as I was doing research on this, uh, there's this one interesting story that Malcolm Gladwell tells. Uh, he's got this podcast, uh, I think Revisionist it's called- Revisionist History. Revisionist History. Yeah. And he's got this one episode of his podcast where he tells this really great story about this uh, Hall of Fame NBA basketball player named Rick Berry. Um, who, I mean, had, you know, uh, 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 you know high scoring, uh, forward. Um, and, uh, but he was especially had like incredible, uh, shooting percentage, uh, with, um, uh, free throws. Okay. Ex exceedingly high. But here's the thing. He threw his free throws underhand. Okay. Which I guess some basketball players refer to as granny style. Okay. So he did this and, and, and he was convinced this is the secret of his success just because the motion is more natural. It just, uh, you know, just lends itself to a, a cleaner shot. But of course, no NBA player now, uh, uh, throws this way. They instead throw, I guess, overhand. Um, and apparently there was this one year where Will Chamberlain, you know, again, one of, considered one of the best players of all time in basketball. Um, but a terrible free throw shoot, uh, a shooter. And this one year, or even just a, a, a short period uh, in one year, Rick Barry convinced him to throw granny style, convinced him to throw underhand. And his three, free throw percentages went through the roof. I mean, they were like, you know, way, way better. He had, uh, because he th used this style, he, I believe, has the highest scoring game ever in recorded history. I mean, uh, uh, by one player, the most points in one game by one player. Um, but then the next year, he reverted back to the regular style. And Malcolm Gladwell, you know, opined that this is because uh, Will Chamberlain was agreeable and Rick Barry was famously disagreeable. That's and a he, great story. Yeah. And he didn't care how he looked. He didn't care. I, mean, I suppose there were, I think people were yelling in the stands. You can imagine back in the day, this is probably in the 60s and 70s, probably, you know, all kinds of uh, things we wouldn't, uh, we want to repeat on air um, to Rick Barry as he's shooting. Um, but he didn't give a shit. Um, and Will Chamberlain did. So he sacrificed, you know, uh, scoring records uh, uh, because he cared what other people thought. Yeah. So we need the people who are willing to be unpopular in order to, you know, do the right or the smart thing, right? So, I mean, the the methods reformers, friend of the show, I'm just going to say friend of the show, Samin Vizier. 
Um, I think she's willing to piss a lot of people off to to change things. And that's it's kind of a necessity when you have an entrenched kind of way of doing things and like people are more or less happy with how things are going and you suggest big changes. They're not going to like you, you know, they're not going to be happy with you. And you have to be willing to say, like, I'm going to do the thing that's going to make me unpopular. Now, I do feel like there's a little bit of a distinction between that like strategically i'm willing to do this because i believe in the goal and i just yell at people because i've had a bad day or you know i'm annoyed or whatever right so when uh, paul i think you said oh, yeah but mickey you don't just like yell at people right like so does that other than my children uh, well they yeah. those, those little breaks <laughs> that's what the kids are for <laughs> they're adorable um so yeah this like that does seem like a, a real difference to me i'm not sure the scale taps that that much this impulse control aspect yeah no i think that would fall in another dimension so that would fall under conscientiousness uh this impulse control dimension it might also fall under um aspects of neuroticism so there is a, a volatility aspect to neuroticism so there's one that's a low af- low affect almost depressive part of neuroticism and the second part is volatility um, so being volatile and being rude and having low impulse control, I imagine you're flying off the handle, you're telling your chair to fuck off and quickly getting fired, probably. Yeah. And you seem like low neuroticism, actually. Uh, yeah, in certain dimensions. <laughs> uh, Colin, Colin, you know, schooled me on, on, in, in a couple of ways. I don't want to reveal my the full uh, my full profile because I feel no one will ever listen to this podcast again if I, if I reveal how deeply disturbed I am. So you're playing against ethnic type? <laughs> in what way? Being low neurotic. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah. I'm actually, so I'm low depressive. Uh, I don't, you know, ruminate. Uh, I don't have too many negative thoughts, but I am more volatile. Yeah. Um, I'm low volatile, high depressive. Okay. Yeah. So that would be like the uh, plaintiff type. Yeah. Yeah. The Woody Allen stereotype. I don't know. I didn't do that part of the scale. <laughs> <laughs> no, me, me neither, actually. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> All right, well, shall we uh, take take a break? Let's take a quick break, and uh, then we'll be back with um, why we like things that hurt us. Welcome back. Um, I'm just going to give you some quick contact information for the show. So as always, our website is forbeers.fireside.fm, where you can find current episode and uh, our archive. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, the best way to do so is actually on Twitter. You can at mention us. You can DM us. Our DMs are open, so anybody can send us a message. That's Four Beers Pod on Twitter. If you'd prefer to send an email, you can email us at fourbeerspod at gmail. Dot com. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, we've had a couple very nice emails from people asking uh, how they can support us. For now, the, the best thing you can do is to rate and review us on iTunes and on, we're now on Stitcher as well, yeah? Um, so doing that helps other people find the show and we really appreciate it. And we thank everybody who's reached out to ask about that. Am I leaving anything out, Mickey? No, I think that's good. I mean, I think in general, uh, I think we both have been enjoying interacting with our listeners. So if you like something you hear, like, you know, you know we can chat with us on Twitter. If you dislike something you hear, definitely, uh, you know, add us on Twitter and we, we, we enjoy a good fight, as you've just heard. Uh, so, yeah, we like talking. So uh, if you like or dislike us, uh, let us know. Yeah, we've had some really nice uh, interactions with listeners who... Uh, who had comments on things we've said, uh, some of them quite critical. And uh, I think in some ways those are the most fun. So yeah, keep the uh, criticism coming, please. Yeah, yeah one list. listener, I think it was yesterday, uh, kind of put, put me to task on the last episode on the intellectual dark web. And I appreciated it because I thought a little, about, a little bit more about what he was saying and I completely agreed with him. So uh, I, we, we both appreciate it. So right, yeah, reach out uh, if you have uh, anything to tell us. Okay, so we're going to... Um, we're going to get going with the, the main topic um, that we had in mind for today's show, which is why we enjoy things that hurt us. And it, in order to really like um, to illustrate this, I guess, in life, uh, Mickey and Paul are going to do some more fireball shots here, which I've, which I've poured for them. I'm abstaining because I don't want to go blind, um, but, they, <laughs> but they're going to do this. Guys, are you are you I'm ready? ready. And I got to say, you know, for all you listeners, this is a thrill for me right now to do a shot with Paul Bloom. Paul Bloom, one of my heroes. Oh, pleasure's mine. So, uh, cheers. Mm, cinnamon. 
Cinnamon. Um, it's great. It's great. It kind of burns a little bit, but it's nice. And this is an agreeable person. That's so Canadian. It's a good burn. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I've, I guess, very mildly introduced the topic, but uh, maybe, Paul, uh, since your next book is about this, you want to say a little more about how you got interested in this, uh, what the problem is? So it, my next book is something which I'm just currently working on a proposal. It's in the very, very early days. But I've always been interested in the question of why we choose to suffer. And um, I think my interest got sparked by Paul Rosen, famous psychologist and man who studies everything interesting, disgust and food and sex and morality. But also he coined the term benign masochism, which is, and every, when we, in, an, in our everyday lives, expose ourselves to sort of control instances of suffering, hot baths, saunas, um, very spicy foods. Um, you know, you have a sprained ankle and you press on it, you poke your tongue against a sore tooth. So I'm interested in where did that come from? And then I'm also interested in fiction and imagination. And a lot of the pleasures we get from fictions are from aversive fictions, scary movies, uh, sad stories. And then there's a broader question at, at a kind of a, a much higher level. But our most interesting life goals often surround are built around pain. Trained for a marathon many years ago, and it was very hard. And the difficulty of it, the physical suffering, the emotional difficulty was part of the appeal. Um, I have a friend of mine uh, who studies why people join ISIS. And people join ISIS because they, they think it's going to be terrible, because it's the end of the world, because it will challenge them. Often these are guys who've experienced every pleasure. They've had a lot of sex, a lot of drugs. And now they're ready to sort of buckle down and experience pain. I mean... I, Are you saying something about Dave Pizarro right now? Yes. Well, and then, then, then <laughs> I, I, there's, it's a good, it's a good segue, Mickey. Then there's sexual masochism, um, which, you know, which is people actually want to be spanked. They want to be whipped. They want to be humiliated. And, um, and that poses its own mystery. And you can say, well, that's entirely separate. I don't think it is. I think that, that these are very different phenomena we're talking about here. I don't think the same theory of why we join ISIS is going to apply to why we like chicken vindaloo. But I think I'm going to find some common themes. So I'm interested in starting this project. And honestly, I'm not going to come to you guys with sort of, oh, here's the complete theory, something which I, I want to talk with you and get ideas. But for me, the broader agenda is a lot of my, our colleagues and a lot of people in the general public think that people are hedonists just after pleasure. We suffer pain voluntarily because you got to do that in order to get to pleasure. You got to work out to be healthy. You got to maybe take an unrewarding job to make money to have fun. But the idea is, in the end, we're always after pleasure. And I think that's really mistaken. I think that our motivations are far more complicated than that. And often we seek out suffering and pain. So that's the sort of thing I'm interested in. Hmm. So why do you think, uh, why do you think that is? I mean, it sounds like you're, you're, you're building a case for there being, it's, it's multiply determined. That's right. Um, but, uh, give us some reasons. Why right. You uh, think... So I'll take one slice of it. I think, um, we also have a strong motivation to play. And what play is, like kids play fighting or wrestling or, or running after each other and so on. That's with kids. But with adults, we play. We play in gyms. We, we punch each other in dojos. We, uh, we, we do sports. And I think the, stand, the standard evolutionary theory of play is that it's designed for practice. It's designed, you, you were motivated to do it to get good at stuff. I think a lot of play goes on in imagination where we imagine bad things, we're drawn to imagine bad things and act out bad things as a way to prepare ourselves for if they were to happen in the future. And I think this can explain why we often like movies and books and TV shows about terrible things. Um, I've always liked zombie movies and zombie TV shows, but, but the fact about those is they're not about zombies. They're about what you do when the whole world falls apart. When institutions fall apart, when you're at the mercy of marauding gangs, when you've got to get the guns as quickly as possible. And that's something people worry about. And I think there's a pleasure to be had in imagining the worst and focusing on it. So that's sort of one slice of it, play. So simulation. So this simulation, one, exactly. Yeah, so simulating uh, 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 possible worlds and, and possible negative worlds to prepare for right. some eventuality. So it's fun simulating winning a great prize and falling in love. It's not very useful. You know, when that thing comes, you'll know how to handle it. But, um, but, but surviving a physical attack, house broken into, house burned down, people you love dying. That's what we tend to think about. That's where our mind gets drawn to. 
That's the, the sort of movies, the sort of movies we see involve really bad shit. Um, the most common dream is being chased. So that's one thing, play. I think, um, I think the best play is sort of control play. Movies, video games, um, some sex play, I think, falls under this, where nobody wants to be humiliated. Nobody wants to be raped. Nobody wants to be assaulted. But people do want to enact it in a safe way where they can say, stop, if it's too much. And um, so that's sort of one line of it. So is it the idea here that... Because uh, I think, you know, uh, the, these things you describe, these even painful, scary, frightening things, um, you're suggesting that people derive pleasure out of this. So, I, so you think they're deriving pleasure because it serves some function, uh, in this case, you know, the function of simulating possible worlds. So we feel good about it because it, it has its kind of evolved function. That's right. That's okay. right. And, and there's a flavor of paradox because you could say, well, how could it be both painful and pleasurable? But I think the paradox is just something really interesting about being human which is we can take things that are normally painful, get pleasure from them. And it's not that we're blotting out the pain. You know, getting into the, doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu or karate and getting, you know, kicked in the face and slammed to the ground, it really hurts. That doesn't go away. But you say, yeah, but I'm loving it. Training for a marathon, um, watching a movie where you're just terrified, all negative, but positive as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting... Uh idea. And this, you know, one thing you said there, um, I thought about for a little bit, and it's always been a kind of mystery to me, about um, why we see movies, why we're so yeah. uh, attracted to stories. And the reason I bring this up is because, so I've also done some work on empathy, um, you know, trying to demonstrate that empathy is um, is cognitively, cognitively effortful. And mm-hmm. when given a choice, uh, people might choose not to do it. Um, and we have lots of data that's consistent with this idea. Um, but the one response I get almost every single time I give this talk is, well, how can empathy be so effortful? <clears throat> how can it be so difficult? Because people see movies. Uh, and uh, the assumption there is that we see movies because we want to empathize. Yeah. Um, whereas, but you're suggesting it might be related to empathy or maybe more like theory of mind. Right. So the movies uh, allow us to simulate. Maybe it's not really time, but I mean, what do you think? Well, why do you think we see movies in, or uh, 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 various kinds? I, mean, I think well, we can... well, there's different reasons. One thing is because movies, the simplest theory is and, and works for a lot of it, is that movies and books, et cetera, are uh, enable us to experience things we enjoy experiencing in reality. So, you know, um, pornography is a good example of that. Maybe you really enjoy watching some na- attractive naked people, but you can't always have attractive naked people around when you want them. So you put it on your laptop, and you know this isn't real, but it's similar enough that it triggers the same. Sort and of I'm, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, um, so this is like all hypothetical. Yoel is well acquainted. We got to get David Pizarro in here. <laughs> <laughs> you need an expert on, on <laughs> exactly. hard, hardcore pornography. Yeah. And were you talking about the dark web? Was that the same? Not, yeah. It's all connected. <laughs> That's right. Um, but, you know, but also, you know, you want to be, you want to have, uh, you want to be surrounded by funny, amusing people. You don't have them around. So you, you turn on the TV to some, uh, sitcom, sitcom or drama. You want to, um, you want to have a great adventure Well, you watch James Bond having a great adventure and you simulate it. The puzzle is, and there's a few puzzles, and I'll push this back at you because we genuinely want, seem to want to get into people's heads to be Anna Karenina or Tony Soprano. Even when these characters aren't having fun, you know, I've been caught up in novels of, you know, my main character's in prison or something. And it's not, I'm not like, like vicariously enjoying this. I'm like, oh, if I was like that, it'd be so much fun. I think this is terrible, Mm -hmm. but it's so engrossing. So what do you think is going, do you think that these cases are low effort empathy? Or do you think that they're high effort empathy, but but the payoff is worth it? Yeah, that's a good question. So my standard answer is, um, you know, people are unwilling to exert effort, uh, all else being equal, rewards being equal. But of course, there could be different payoffs for this. And maybe there is some payoff for simulation. But I'll admit here, it's a sort of a cop-out. Because I don't know how effortful it is, you know, you know, when you're watching a movie. It's so there's so much context, and there's so much background. It does seem to be there does seem to be some automaticity there, or at least some contagion there. 
It has to feel. It has to feel. So some empathy has a feeling of automaticity. Yes. Um, I see a comedian bombing on stage, and I feel mortified for him. And I don't even want to, but there, there you go. Mm-hmm. When the visual cues are tight enough and the connection's clear, empathy is easy. Empathy is difficult in the cases where let, let me tell you a story about some guy, and they that, okay, I'll put myself in his shoes. And and I agree with you. Empathy is costly. And I love your research on that. That that shows how people kind of choose whether or not to accept the cost, mm-hmm. and also depending on their beliefs about the cost and so on. Right. Um, but yeah, but I mean, I, I mean, there have to be some cases of empathy or empathy-like things. So, I mean, do we are, is emotional contagion is that enough to be empathy? Uh, just kind of catching you know the feelings out there, um, or do you need some extra cognitive process you know to be full-blown empathy? To some extent, it, it, it's it's an interesting issue. To some extent, it's definitional. So some people say it doesn't count as empathy unless you separate self from other. So if you're really angry, and I start to feel kind of angry, but I don't know it's because you're angry, that for some people wouldn't count as empathy. Right. I think it's obviously very similar psychological neural mechanisms. Um, whatever you call it is very similar. I guess what I would say, though, is that the empathy that you and I are maybe most interested in need not be emotional contagion. We can feel empathy for somebody we read about, uh, that we hear about, that we imagine. And so it's more like Adam Smith empathy, which is which includes emotional contagion, but goes but goes beyond it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in general, the topic of fiction and the fictions we like are um, is really interesting. I mean, this goes to a more general point. We're all psychologists here, and I think our field has. This is a point made by Paul Rosen, who I mentioned before, which is there's all this extremely interesting stuff that, for some reason, we could speculate our field has missed out on. I think uh, Rosen argues that food it was surprising, embarrassing, little knowledge about food. Mm-hmm. We don't, for instance, know why people like the foods they like. Um, uh, I think we don't know that much about sex. I think, um, and, and fiction. Sports is another example Rosen gives. Sports is such a fun, World Cup's happening. Now. There's a fundamental aspect of people's life. You ask psychologists to tell. So why do people like sports? What determines what sports they like? We don't know. Well, some people might argue it's all, you know, jingoism, it's all social identity. So it's it's some way to, um, you know, beat your chest, you know, have someone else do battle for you. Um, and yeah, feel, you know, have a group feeling, which can be positive and it's also a very safe way of doing it. Yeah, I think I think in, in that sentence, it captures a lot of good observations about sports. Yeah. But but if our psychology department was looking for a new hire and, and I said in a faculty meeting, um, said you, we should find somebody who studies sports. People would really roll their eyes. Yeah. Same if I said fiction. It used to be if I said morality, they'd roll their eyes. Not so much these days. No, not at all. Um, yeah, but fiction, I mean, is so interesting. I mean, a universal feature of, of humans. I mean, just like attracted to it. It's like, it's like music, right? I mean, music yep. has this kind of this bodily effect. I mean, for me, I know apparently there are these... Um, uh, these uh, individual differences. Some people mm-hmm. can actually, you know, get goosebumps from music. I'm one of those people. I get so, that too. yeah, and like mu- music really moves me. Um, fiction can do the same, um, and it's amazing, you know, how it's this universal thing. And yeah, we don't know much about it. This is where, again, going back to you know where we started with Jordan. I think Jordan is picking up on something interesting there with you know these universal stories, these stories that seem to repeat, and and you know stories are important, and they might say something about us. And why are we so interested in them? And yeah, we don't. I don't think we know nearly enough. Yeah, I mean, Ian McEwen, the author, has this wonderful essay. And he says the stories that interest us revolve around plots that wouldn't be unfamiliar to non-human primates. They involve, you know, family, aggression, sex, um, conflict. You know, you look at the basic plots, and they involve things of fundamental importance to people. Um, I forget who said this, but but somebody said, you know, just about all stories will have sex and violence in it. Despite the fact, in, in the, despite the fact that that your actual amount of time in your life involved in sex and involved in violence, even if you live the most interesting life in the world, <laughs> is fairly tiny. I mean, compared to, I guess, for modern people, email. Um, and but sex and violence are extremely important because, from a, a, an evolutionary standpoint, they connect to the two most important things of all: reproduction and death. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and we're obsessed with status. I think all good stories are status stories. And I think, and this connects to what we're talking about, pain, we're, we're obsessed with, with failure and death and, and, and 
trauma and disaster. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, I, I've done a bunch of abortive studies with kids that never got published. Um, I had a, um, a graduate student. Uh, she was very interested in a little engine that could, this plot of that, where a little engine tries and tries and tries and ultimately and making hand motions going up and they could. Um, and she wanted to see whether the kids enjoyed that more than the little engine that failed. Um, <laughs> I love that. That's you know, right. Tries and tries and tries. Right, and just and can't make it up that hill. Can't make it up the hill. The end. Right, and it may be, it may be, you know, we adults like occasionally like tragedies. Nobody yeah. ever tries them out on kids. Or what about the, what about the train that you know never had any doubts? Oh, yeah, that's boring. Right. That's, that's right. Then right. nobody's going to be into that. That's right. Um, but I think Delange could, and then just hung out for a while. Right. Yeah. I think that relates to to your point about pain. It's like. We don't care about the train that doesn't feel any pain. It was like you know was bigger and stronger and won all the all the races. It's like oh, who cares? But the one that was you know had some difficulty, some tension, um, uh, we're much more attracted to. Okay, so here's a question that I got from Paul Rosen actually. So he points out in some of his writing on benign masochism that there's certain things that we enjoy experiencing even though they're negative. So it can be physical pain, for example. It can be sadness. It can be fear. And there's certain things we don't. Like nobody is like, oh, I'm really enjoying being bored just a little bit, yeah. just the right amount. Or or physically nauseated. Nausea is a wonderful example. Yeah. Nobody's ever sought out nausea. Right. Right. So what differentiates those unpleasant things from the unpleasant things that we like? It's a great question. You know, um, Dan Gilbert did some experiment. Harvard did some experiments with electric shock. I was just thinking of that. And um, and the story goes. I mean, you could expand on it. That it, the details of the experiment don't don't matter. But people love to get electrically shocked. They love to get shocked. the undergraduates will line up to get shocked. And and at one point, I was interested in this masochism stuff. And a couple of my students brought in a shock machine from Germany, like the sort of thing you can't get in America. And <laughs> of course, put, it has to be from Germany. And you put your hands on it, and it goes like Achtung, and then shocks you. <laughs> And you're, and you're like, you know, but you know, you're, you're, you're right. If I said, here's a little pill and it'd make you a bit nauseous. Nobody would want to take it. I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. Maybe the, I don't know. I mean, you might, you might want to, if you had to speculate, you look at sort of things like maybe there's not much you could do with nausea. It's not a sort of, it's not. What if it was short lived? So, I mean, so, you know. That Gilbert and Wilson uh, uh, and Aaron Westgate paper uh, is an interesting one, um, but that's essentially this is the electric shock paper. Yes, yeah, so the electric shock paper inside. People would rather shock themselves than be bored. Than yeah, be, so the real nothing. yeah the the, the 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 I think the 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 causal force there is boredom. Right, so boredom, and this goes back to your point. Boredom is is a highly aversive state, and people will do lots of things to get out of it. But now. What if, okay, nausea, yes, yeah, I can't imagine people willingly do that. But what if, what if the nausea was like one second of nausea? Good, good. You put your hand on something, you feel a wave of nausea, then you pull it back. Would people do it? Yeah. I bet people would. Mm, For I, a second. You see, what I don't like about nausea, once you feel nauseous, you, yeah, <laughs> you're screwed. You yeah. Know, you got to right. for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that shock yeah. feels terrible, but it, it's over. I mean, I think another fascinating answer, which connects to, to stuff that we're interested in here, is morality. Um, I think there's often an association between suffering and, uh, and morality. We tend to appreciate the altruism people more if they suffer. There's a, a literature on saying, cook all tainted altruism, where you do some really good things, but you like it. You do it to meet people. You do it to make money. And, but you also really make the world a better place. We tend to think that wasn't good. I mean, this is part of the theme of, of the work of David Pizarro, who we we mocked earlier, but now we'll credit because he talks about the idea that when it comes to moral psychology, we're not deontologists, we're not utilitarians, we're sort of virtue ethicists looking at people's characters. So if Yoel is just good because it's just easy for him to be good, it doesn't even bother him. Well, what is that? It doesn't, you know, okay, he's a naturally good character, but you, through your force of will, aspire to get over your, your savagery and help people. You know, um, that really says something about you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, as I say that, that's not quite right. Why, 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 right. why don't you get credit for being naturally yeah, good? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think a lot of the people who talk about character talk about that concern as arising from predicting who's going to be a safe interaction partner in the that's future, right. right? And and you want the person who's naturally inclined to be helpful, not the person who has to fight tooth and nail in order to not stab you in the back, right? So, I, I yeah, I think there's something else going on. You know, I noticed this... Uh, 
Every year when I teach my psychology of morality class, and we, t- we talk about altruism, this is a senior level seminar, and they always get hung up on the idea of like that there is no such thing as pure altruism, right? Yeah. They're like, you know, you're doing it for social rewards, or um, maybe you're doing it because they might help you in the future, or because it just makes you feel good about yourself. And they, they think somebody who feels like authentically good from helping somebody else isn't doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about that and I, I, th- I try to kind of point out to them that that's a really weird thing to think, it's right? Like, what, what do you want? You know? Yeah. I mean, there, there's work in this. Christina Starmans, who's my, my, worked in my lab and your colleague, um, has done some lovely stuff with adults and with kids. I'll talk about the adult stuff on how we judge moral actions involving temptation. And the consistent finding is you met two guys. So what you do is I leave my wallet here. And you are not in the slightest bit tempted to take my money. You never did. It didn't occur to you. You, pointing to Mickey, uh, get really tempted to take my money. Um, but you struggle with it and you don't. People think you're better. People give you credit for, for fighting conflict. Interestingly, kids don't. Kids flip it. Kids think you're, hmm. kids think to un, kids think temptation corrodes you and corrupts you. Hmm. Um, and if you think about it, it's kind of crazy. Because overall, over time, uh, Yoel, who isn't tempted at all, is probably a safer partner. If you're tempted, then one day your willpower will fade. Um, I'd rather have a babysitter for my kids, if I had young kids, who's never tempted by pedophilic sexual impulses, than one who's really tempted but struggles and holds it back. <laughs> That's a great example. Yeah. I, think, I don't think a single one of our listeners would disagree with you there. <laughs> yes. And... and um, and in the extremes, if your temptation is really bad, the results kind of flip. But but it's true. We we tend to give credit for fighting temptation, for fighting dark impulses. Mm-hmm. There's a parallel to this. So uh, I was uh, uh, I went to the Hebrew school, uh, you know, uh, elementary school and high school. Um, and the Talmud, I remember learning one of the one of the very few things that I remember from the Talmud was. Um, that a uh, someone who was a sinner, someone who was uh, abandoned God, someone who you know was an atheist, someone who stopped believing, but then returned yeah. to God, even you know on his or her deathbed, was worth more than someone who had been a believer his or her whole life. Um, so someone who'd been tempted uh, and then chosen the right path. Um, and that's a common trope in the sort of TV shows and movies I watch, which is the near do well. The, the, the troublemaker, the bad guy, becomes a good guy and gets enormous amounts of credit. Well, decent people like us, we're just good all the time. And then, you know, at the end, we're just second fiddle. Sure yeah. makes you feel like a sucker, doesn't it? It does. It does. <laughs> I should have been a near-do-well in my... staying near-do-well. It's not, me happy. not too late. <laughs> not too late. What? And then get better in my 70s? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Either the good thing or the bad thing about this topic is there's so many different theories that work in different ways. You know, you mentioned before the male propensity to do dumb shit. Mm-hmm. And this propensity, I think, is much exaggerated when you're surrounded by other people. Um, my, my younger son is at UBC. Oh, I got to tell this story. Um, it was some sort of fraternity where there was a big competition to see who would become the president of fraternity. And the idea is. Um, you, um, you, each of the candidates stands up on the stage, all of the guys around there, to make their case as to why they'd be president. So, speech, speech, speech. A guy comes up. I won't describe all of this, but he takes off his shirt, has his friend there. His friend has, has this campaign thing, staples it to his chest. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it goes on from there. He won in a landslide. <laughs> Because <laughs> you know, and um, <laughs> it does show dedication. Yeah, it shows his dedication, his commitment, but also his character. Mm-hmm. He would he would endure this terrible pain, and I have spared you the details that my son did not spare me the details. Um, but does but, it involve other body parts? It involves his nipples. It involves <laughs> it's just it's just it was really testicles. It, <laughs> the, the, testicles <laughs> the testicles were undone. I'm not comfortable with where this is going. Yeah, but um. But you know, and and it's you know it's true if you if you wanted to be to be um, you know a dean at at a University of Toronto, this is probably not a good strategy. It is calibrated <laughs> only to a group of young men. But 
but constantly, but but the but but we do this in all sorts of subtle ways. All, all your colleagues who boast about getting only five hours of sleep and and a thousand emails and oh my god, I'm traveling around all the time and everything is in some way you know boasting. However much they're in demand, but also boasting about the, the suffering they're doing for the cause. But also how, I think, how capable and smart they yes. are, because yes. they can do this despite yes. the pain, the impediments, the lack of studying, uh, the lack of sleep. Yes. Yeah. And I, I actually, I'll add one detail. The first thing he did was squirt Tabasco sauce in his eyes. Whoa. <laughs> oh, God. But but if you think of it, you, you hear the story and you have to think, huh. You know, we really going to vote for another guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's that is that is super interesting. So I'm actually a a a uh, probably should be no surprise. I'm uh, a huge you know spicy food lover, um, and it's true. You all, what you said earlier about uh, some foods just start losing taste, like food that's not yeah. heavily spiced is like bland, bland doesn't even taste like anything. But I'm not searching for. Just taste. I mean, I, I. It's true. I want to feel the pain. I want to feel. Okay, you know, yeah. the ideal is when I'm feeling pain, probably sweating, but not so much that I, you know, I can't enjoy the food because that's a, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a razor's edge there. Yeah. I was in China and I had a, a chicken with uh, peppers, and the peppers had a feeling of electric shock. I forget what the is that sort of taste of this metallic shock uh, flavor. Yeah, uh, have, there's a name for it which I forget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that was that Sichuan or? Yeah, yeah. yeah I know those peppers. And, they have uh, a really unique. It's like, an weird... astonishing flavor. Yeah, it's quite unpleasant but pleasant at the same time. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. So rosin has. I don't actually know what the evidence for this is, but what I think is a, a fascinating fact when he talks about this stuff, which is that in many uh, countries where people often eat spicy foods, animals eat the trash, right? Yeah. Dogs and pigs and so on. And you would think maybe those animals acquire a taste for it. And it turns out they don't. So unlike the people, uh, they don't, I mean, they'll tolerate it in order to eat the garbage, but they don't like it. You know, if you give them a choice afterwards, I guess they'll they'll prefer the non-spicy version. So it seems to be only people who develop this sort of a liking, like a, an attraction to the bad thing. Do you I, think it's signaling? Purely signaling? No. 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 Because I think if I'm eating a burrito on my own and it's not spicy enough, then I'm kind of like, yeah, mm -hmm. boring. I think it's sort of play. It's practice. It's exploring in a safe way. I would make the prediction those... Uh, I'll make a prediction that, that you did this sort of Dan Gilbert experiment where you're really bored, so you shock yourself. You put a dog in the room. Nothing to do in the room. Dog walks around, goes in there. But there's a button no dog could press where it gives the dog a painful shock. I think the dog will do that once and then avoid that button forever. Yeah. It won't go back and start zapping itself and sitting on it and everything. The same thing like, a, like a, a, an undergraduate would do. It would just say, that's painful. It's an evolutionary no-brainer. People are complicated in that way. Do dogs get bored? Oh, that's such a good question. I, want, I wrote a book on pleasure, and the question I, I had all these questions, which I didn't know the answer. One is that that, um, and this is related to your question. Um, monkeys are are big masturbators, but I wonder whether they. It's a hell of a thing to just throw out there in passing. <laughs> you know, we're scientists. Yeah. Um, but I wonder whether they have sexual fantasies while they do it. Huh. I think about other other monkeys. I can't believe that that's your answer. <laughs> one would hope. <laughs> Maybe zebras. <laughs> yeah, you don't know. You don't know how perverse these monkeys are. And get. so, so you know, I, I had a wonderful greyhound for many years, and you know, she would dream. You, you see her moving around and dream as if she's being she's chasing something or something. But I don't know whether she she thinks about anything when she was bored, or just the system sort of shuts down. Mm hmm. Yeah, so dogs will like uh they'll get into stuff if they're bored, yes. right? Uh they'll go explore. Yes. Do they find it aversive? Like would they be upset if you just put them in a room where there's nothing to do and I think they'd just go to sleep. People put I never did this, but people put their dogs in like these boxes and they'll just go to sleep. Oh yeah, like a crate. In crates, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they if they're anxious. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And uh people wouldn't do that. No. People would not just go to sleep. They would be upset. People would be upset by that. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. You don't want to create your kids. That's what I'm saying, Mickey. <laughs> Note to self for Note next to... time we travel. He's, he's writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> don't create the kids. 
Okay, so I'm going to propose something else, and you guys tell me what you think. So it seems to me like a lot of the things that we value the most, um, so uh, sex, um, mind-altering drugs, maybe really intense experiences of listening to music or um, athletic performance, they involve turning off kind of the background noise in your head, which if you've ever tried to meditate, you, you're very aware of just yeah. what's constantly going on in your yeah. head. And, and you realize that you don't control this stuff. It's just kind of floating around in there and God knows where it comes from and you can't shut it off. And it, it is a burden. And, you know, I think Paul, you said like it focuses you yeah. to feel pain. And I think you can say that for many negative experiences, that your attention is drawn by that bad thing. And to an extent, it turns off the other stuff. I did Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a while and ended getting various injuries and didn't continue with it. I really enjoyed it when doing it. But I loved the sparring, even though I was no, not good at rolling. Um, and for part of it is because when I was doing that, it's the, the only time in my life I was thinking of nothing else nothing else and it was because of the difficulty because of the pain because of the risk because of the fear and it's so so unique to feel that and positive experiences often don't do that positive experiences you know with the exception of some really positive experiences you can kind of escape from it and start worry about your have you done your taxes and you know and your h index and <laughs> but, yeah, in the middle of sex, I'm often calculating my age index. I'm like, oh, I'm at 49 today. Uh, <laughs> as long as you're not actually looking it up, you're fine. <laughs> just a bit of baby. <laughs> I just got rid of those Google Scholar emails. Yeah, it just pumped me up. Uh, yeah, well, bad is stronger than good. Bad, right? is, bad is stronger than good. Yeah. Yeah. So I've never done any like kind of competitive sport like that, but I do, I, I do like indoor climbing like mm. on, a, on a wall. Um, and you really have to focus or else you, you know, fall off. Yep. It. And it's, a, there's this sort of like fear of heights that even though, you know, you're like attached by the rope and like your belayer has you, it's scary. And it really focuses you in a way that very few other things do. And I think that's a similar kind of part of what's pleasurable about that. Is that like it just turns all that other stuff off? Hmm. Yep. Yep. So, okay, we said, you know, we, we repeatedly, you know, talked about this idea of like bad being stronger than good. I think that's true, kind of. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I think part of the reason we've come to this conclusion is because our stimuli were poor. Um, so, for example, um, one stimuli set that we, as, as psychologists, use a lot is the IAPS, the International Affective Picture System, these kind of standardized pictures that evoke uh, various emotions. Um, and that was, for example, John Cacioppo, he drew the conclusion that uh, bad is stronger than good through testing you know, reactions, whether it be, you know, electrophysiological reactions in the face or sweating or brain responses, um, you know, bad versus good. Um, but it turns out that while it's possible that's true, mm -hmm. but there's also a, a, a problem with, with some of these studies. And that is they, they never actually picked really great positive stimuli. Um, so some of the positive images you know, uh, or a positive kind of stimuli would be like watching a dude, you know, a water skiing, um, you know, or seeing someone <laughs> that, in, in, that a, in a roller coaster, <laughs> right? Yeah, that evokes jealousy to me. It's like, yeah, I want right. to be on a beach too. Look at that asshole. Right. Yeah. But once they started using, for example, pornographic stimuli, whoa, yeah. like, uh, you know, you, you know, I've looked at brain responses to porn versus any other stimulus imaginable. Like you can tell when they're watching porn. Besides sex, can you think of many examples of a pleasurable experience that takes you out of your head? Let's grant you sex, although it's kind of... I mean, um, I think your mileage may vary depending on how much you think about other things during sex. And <laughs> but um, the age index aside. Like, okay, so something like, like this. Having a great discussion with two friends. And, it's only, and then I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm focusing on discussion. I'm enjoying it. I'll say one thing, though, about the negativity bias, which is it's always rung true to me. And here's how we think about it. You know, we'll, all three of us have our phones turned off because we're doing a podcast. And the first thing we do in podcasts is we'll turn off our phones and check for messages. Think of the best message you can imagine and think of the worst. And to me, there's no comparison. You know, what's the best one? 
I won a prize. Um, you know, Amazon made a mistake and delivered a color TV to my house. <laughs> you know, what's the worst? Well, we all people we love. I mean, you know. Yeah. I guess there are many more ways things can go wrong. Yes. I mean, you're right. I, and, I think... and, and many and much worseness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, my favorite example for this is teaching emails where the one bad one just really stays on your mind, right? Like a hundred people are like, great class, loved it. And one person's like, he had a funny way of talking. I'm like, God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. If one more person says I speak too, too quickly, I will strangle someone. Yeah. yeah. I was Mr. Bloom is not half as smart as he thinks he is. <laughs> <laughs> from, from like four years. I've made it my life to find a person. <laughs> okay. We're at two hours plus. <laughs> okay. I think we do a little bit of wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so, Paul, thank you so much uh, for coming on our podcast. I know that normally you're you're used to a higher class of podcasts, shall we say? I've done a lot of podcasts, and this has been extremely terrific. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, Have me back. Thank you. Thank you. It's I the beer. That's the beer talk. Love to. Yeah. You uh, supply alcohol. <laughs> I mean, Sam Harris, uh, certainly very bad, bad blizzards. I'm on my own. And really, they, they don't give you any Viagra. <laughs> no, they, they won't share. Adderall? No. You know, All I'm, for David. Yeah, yeah. A bit of coke, but still not <laughs> yeah. much more than that. No good. Uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on. And uh, I'm really happy that you are our first guest. Well, thank you. It's been a delight. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners before we break? No, nope, no. Nope, I'm all set. We got Can it? we pimp you somehow? I mean, you want to you want to sell something? <laughs> yeah, or, uh, your upcoming book. Um, Should people pre-order that on Amazon? Or? Yeah, my, my upcoming book is going to go to bid. So if you're an editor, you should you should be considering it. But otherwise, it's going to be out in like seven years. 